0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, and Procurus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Some of you may be tired of the Shepherd series by now. It's a little bit like a lecture series on corporate management. I mean, who wants to go to that? Jesus is is like the owner of the church. The Holy Spirit is the chief executive, which, of course, makes elders and deacons middle management. You know, their job is to implement the company strategy, that is the Great Commission, and to report to the higher-ups, that is, they answered to King Jesus. Elders are often seen as unnecessary and are blamed for holding back the church and using their influence for their own selfish ends. Sounds a little bit like middle management to me. Now, now don't worry. I, I know that the church is not a business, and, and though, uh, though there are some often humorous similarities. probably won't be surprising to you uh, to say that I think about how the church functions all the time, really every single day, particularly uh, the things about which I'm going to talk this morning. And that's not just because I have an obsessive personality, but because the Bible suggests that these things are important. We have been going through a series on the shepherd leader. We've looked at the role of the shepherd leader in 1 Peter chapter 5, that the role of the shepherd leader is that of pastoral oversight, particularly exercised through modeling and teaching. Then we looked at the qualifications of the shepherd leader in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, both the moral qualifications and then sort of the basic people and teaching skills that are necessary uh, to fulfill the role of shepherd and last time we looked at the authority of the shepherd leader in Mark chapter 10. We saw that the shepherd leader is a servant leader who, as a steward of Jesus' authority, exercises that authority to serve others for the good of the sheep. This week we're going to look at the partner of the shepherd leader in Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at the deacon. We're going to look at the relationship between the deacon's role and the elders' role. Now, we are going to look at Acts chapter 6. We're not going to say everything that there is to say about Acts 6, 1 through uh, 6 or 7, but we're going to focus on what these verses teach us about church government, and we're going to pick up some other things in our sermon series on Acts. So we're going to focus this morning just on Acts 6, 1 through 6, and what it teaches us about church government. And what is, uh, what is the summary? What is it that I, that I want you to walk away with this morning? I want you to see that Jesus cares for his people, body and soul, and that this is reflected in the way that Jesus has structured his church, giving ministers of both word and deed, So we're going, to, we're going to look at this short story in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to look at four things. Our outline uh, for this morning involves four things. We're going to look at the, the background of this short story. The background is that there is there is mercy ministry in the church. Then we're going to look at the problem or the conflict and the prejudice that was in the church. We're going to look at the solution, and which is a twofold ministry in the church. And finally, we're going to look at the process, which is how the leaders are chosen and appointed in the church. So we're going to look at the background, the problem, the solution, and the process. First, the background. Verse one. Verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You see, from the earliest days, the church cared for its poor. You see this from Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 which says and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any uh, to all as any had need. Acts 4:32 to 35 says now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And So from the start, the church was caring for its poor. And this is really just, they were living in accordance with the Old Testament law, which encourages Israel to care for the poor and the fatherless and the widows see that especially in the book of Deuteronomy. And so the first thing to notice is that mercy ministry is part of the ministry of the church from the start. It is overseen in the beginning by the apostles themselves. Now, the New Testament goes on to say that if you are a Christian and you have a poor relative in the church, a poor widowed mother perhaps, you should take the responsibility to care for that person upon yourself. Not allow that person and there needs to be a burden on the church. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 5.16. But the point here and even there is that if someone in the church is unable to care for their own needs, the church should provide for them. Now, this is not about giving people a free ride. 2 Thessalonians 3.10-12 It says, uh, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But, of course, as we know, willingness to work is not the same as ability to earn a livable wage. And so, within the context of both 1 Timothy and Acts, the focus is on widows, who were unable to earn much of a living in that culture. These were not lazy, able-bodied young people, but godly older widows who lacked not the desire, but the ability or maybe even the opportunity to earn a living. Okay, so here's the question for us right from the start. Are there physical needs in our congregation that as a congregation we can and need to address. To be sure, we need to do good to all people, but especially to those of the household of the faith. And so that is our, our first question, the first question we need to address. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because Jesus cares for his sheep. And the primary means by which he cares for his sheep is through his body, the church, the, the way we treat our own poor is a reflection, good or bad, of Jesus' care for his sheep. Now, uh, we are not a particularly impoverished church. There there may be needs here and there, and it is imperative that we address them. But, But just because we are not an impoverished church does not mean that we are then therefore free from this call. In fact, during much of Paul's ministry, he took up a collection for the needy church in Jerusalem. He talks about this again and again as you read through Paul's letters. So, Romans 15, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord." begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6-12. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And so we must ask not only are there physical needs in our congregation that as a congregation we can address, but also concerning the church at large, how can we care for our brothers and sisters throughout the world in a way that brings thanksgiving to God? Now, we can't meet every need, and we certainly we shouldn't try. But what needs are there that we can address? Now, I want to... Briefly, I'll touch on this again later, but I want to briefly ask the question, why did the early church do this? They did this because the the generosity of God in the gospel had gripped their hearts. They were struck by the grace of God, that that Jesus, though rich, became poor, that we might become rich in him. That he, though king, became a servant, that we, though servants, might become children of the living God in him. That he, though righteous, bore judgment for sin, that we who are sinners might become righteous before our Father in him. And it is that kind of generosity, gripping hearts, that moves us to be generous. But there was a problem. The early church cared for its poor, but not all went smoothly. There were two groups of people here, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. They weren't two different ethnicities, but on the one hand, Jewish people who spoke Greek from the wider world, the Hellenists, and Jewish people who spoke mostly Aramaic and a little bit of Greek, who lived their whole life in the land of Israel, the Hebrews. The Hellenists were worldly, not in a negative sense, but they had seen the world. They were culturally Roman, they spoke Greek. And at some point in their lives, they moved back to Jerusalem. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were traditional. They were culturally Jewish. They spoke Aramaic. They lived here all their lives. What was the problem? Well, as the church distributed its food for its poor widows, the Hellenists felt overlooked. Now, we will talk about this more next time we look at Acts chapter 6, but notice First, that the first interpersonal conflict in the church was over culture and cultural bias. How easily do we bring our cultural bias into the church? And it's wrong. And and this cultural aspect of Acts chapter 6 is actually pretty central to the message of the book of Acts. It's not incidental. This this cultural aspect is central as the gospel moves from Jew to Samaritan, ultimately to Gentile, throughout the book of Acts. But for now, I just want you to note that while the church was seeking to care for its poor, it was not working the way it was supposed to. There was prejudice, unfair treatment, cultural bias, bias, and favoritism. And the apostles' job as leaders in the early church was to address this situation. What was the solution? The solution was a twofold ministry. Let's see how they end up here. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles have a clear view of their call they were called to preach the word. You see this in verse 4 again. They say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the, the ministry or the service of the word. As the shepherd leaders of the church at that time, their primary responsibility given by Christ was prayer and the ministry or service of the word. Now, Only those who had seen the risen Christ could be apostles. The apostles' role uh, as apostles involved their bearing witness to the risen Jesus. And so their apostolic ministry an apostolic ministry, any apostolic ministry, was limited to their lifespan, to those who had seen the risen Jesus. And yet, as we read through the book of Acts and into the epistles, uh, there is an ongoing shepherding ministry that is done by the elders. We see this transition take place even in the book of Acts. As we start out appointing apostles in Acts chapter 1, one in particular, and and then we move on, Uh, Paul in his missionary journeys begins to appoint elders. Uh, We see even in Acts uh, 20 that the the great... uh, Speech to the Ephesian elders. We see this transition in ministry from the apostles to the elders. So the elders' primary responsibility then is what? Well, it's verse four: prayer and the ministry of the word. Right? They are the shepherd leaders, the ongoing shepherd leaders of the church. And uh, th- th- this is this is not new, right? The, the great shepherd leader of God's people, one of the great shepherd leaders of God's people in the Old Testament, Samuel, at the end of his life says to Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Now, Samuel lived at about 1000 B.C., And what that means is that the role of leaders in God's church has remained the same for 3,000 years. Now, in an ever-changing job market, that is job stability. The shepherd's role is to patiently persevere in prayer and in the proclamation of the Word. It is a narrowly defined but an enduring job description. Now, up to this point in Acts, the apostles had personally overseen the distribution of funds to the needy in the church. Acts chapter 4 again says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This conflict in the church... Uh, Of of unfair treatment of the Greek-speaking widows not only threatened to bring division to the church, but even if it was solved, it threatens the integrity of the shepherd's role. What do I mean? Well, look again at verse 2. Verse 2 says, uh, the 12 summon the disciples together and they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, there is no theological dispute here but a practical problem, right? While it did threaten their witness to the gospel, it did not threaten the theology of the gospel. And so the apostles realize: look, if we personally try to fix this problem, if we personally try to solve this, we will be distracted from our primary calling. And yet it is important because it does have to do with a witness uh, to the gospel and our love for one another. And so what is the solution? Well, verses two to four. It is not right, the apostles say, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The the word here, there is a word here uh, in both its verb and and noun form. It's found three times, translated three different ways. Verse 1, it's the word distribution. Verse 2, the word serve, to serve tables. Uh, Verse 3, it's translated as ministry, the ministry of the word. The the, the word is diakonia, that's the noun, or diakoneo, the verb. This is the the, the Greek word from which we get the English word deacon, deacon. It's a word that means service or ministry. And what the apostles essentially do here is say there are two different kinds of ministry, two different kinds of service, the ministry of the word and the ministry of tables. You see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve, Diaconeo. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, that's one kind of service, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, again, that's this is the second kind of service, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so there is this twofold service in 1 Peter 4. Uh, the twofold service is speaking and serving, word and deed ministry. Well, that brings us to another question. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, uh, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What is the duty of these seven men? Well, verse 1 calls it daily the daily distribution. Verse 2 calls it serving tables. Um, but there, there are two things about the role of these men that we should mention. The first is, it seems like there were a lot of Christian widows in Jerusalem. If there could be this argument among them about who was being served, there were probably quite a few. And there are only seven men appointed here. What do I take from that? Well, these men are not necessarily personally handing out food to each widow. Surely they would participate, but they don't necessarily do it all. Uh, What are they doing? They are overseeing that work. They are given oversight, authority, and administrative responsibility over this work. Second thing, what is it exactly that they are overseeing? Uh, The description in verse 2 is serve tables. The two words are diakoneo, again, and trapeza. Um, the, The verb means to serve or administer. The noun means Table. Which seems pretty clear, right? Except that the word table can not only mean a dinner table, but also a bank table. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 23. Uh, Jesus uh, says, or um, the, uh, the master in this parable says, uh, Why then did you not put my money in the bank, trapeza, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And this has led some translators uh, to translate the phrase very differently. As Alexander Strauch points out, uh, the Good News Bible translates Acts 6-2 this way. It is not right for us to neglect the preaching of God's Word in order to handle finances. It also renders the end of Acts 6-1 as daily distribution of funds. In the New Testament in modern English, J.B. Phillips gives his rendering of verse 2. It is not right that we should have to neglect preaching the word of God in order to look after the accounts. This actually fits in pretty well with the picture that we're given in Acts 4.35, where people lay money at the apostles' feet and they distribute it to any who are in need. Clearly, these men are overseeing the distribution of something to the poor and the needy widows. Whether that is the distribution of food or of funds— actually may be a bit unclear, but it's almost irrelevant because it amounts to the same thing. They're distributing to the poor and needy what the poor and needy in the church need. The apostles, in order to preserve their ministry of the word, appointed some to the ministry of tables, whether food or finances, whether the dinner table or the Excel spreadsheet. Okay, two more questions here about this point. Is this really about deacons? Uh, These seven are not called deacons, and yet uh, Presbyterians in particular insist that this is the founding of this office. Why? Well, first, as we've seen, the words diaconia and diaconeo are used. So even if if these men are not called deacons or servants, capital S, servants, uh, they are deaconing, They are serving. Uh, Second, it's uh, clear uh, this passage gives a very clear and practical and functional division between word ministry and deed ministry, between speaking and serving, a division found elsewhere, 1 Peter 4, for example. Third, if someone insists, but they're not called deacons in Acts 6, okay, fine, fair enough. But even if they're not officially deacons yet, their ministry is a prototype of the diaconal role. And so whether we call these seven men deacons or a prototype of the diaconal role doesn't really matter to me. The point is we see here a precedent for the division of labor in leading the church. There are those who lead overall and spiritually, who pray and who preach, There are those who lead in caring for the practical needs of God's people, which frees up teachers to do their work. Well, what does this tell us about the role of elders and deacons today? First, the elder's role is narrowly defined. It's pray and preach. Prayer, we should note in uh, the words of the apostles, comes first. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, again, we've talked about the elder's role already. We've fleshed that out in a previous sermon. Let me just add this here. It is incredibly easy for elders to get sidetracked from this calling. And it is incredibly important that elders don't get sidetracked from this calling. It is easy because there are other good, important things to be done in and outside the church. Nevertheless, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. There are so many things that I could be doing, that I want to do, that I feel drawn to do because they are important for us as a church. But it is not right that I should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. That means that whatever we do by way of mercy ministry, I'm not likely to be the person leading it. It's not because I don't desire it. It's not because I don't see its importance. It it, it is because it is not right that I should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. There is a division of labor in the church. That is not my calling, as important as it is. What that means is, of course, it is on you as a congregation as you see the needs and opportunities out there to lead the way. And of course, as we develop deacons, they will take an active role in that as well. Now, the second thing this tells us about the role of elder and, and deacons, or, or secondly, there are, there are still a few questions, right, about the deacon's role. Th- there are really uh, three broad views out there about what a deacon does. Um, there are a lot more than that, but three in particular, three that you might find in more Presbyterian and Reformed circles. Uh, the first is that the deacons only oversee mercy ministry, that is, care for the underprivileged in the church. And the argument is pretty simple. Acts uh, in Acts, we see these men appointed to oversee the care of widows, no more, no less. It's about the daily distribution of either food or funds to those in need, and so the deacons oversee mercy ministry. Nothing else. Second view, uh, deacons oversee the care of the physical needs of the church, whatever they may be. You know, often deacons end up caring for the building. That is a physical, practical need in the church. It falls outside, though, of prayer and preaching. And so in order for elders not to be distracted, deacons oversee that physical, practical need. Now, often uh, deacons end up being glorified janitors, and and that is a mistake. It's a mistake in part because this is about oversight, which it's true in a small church, oversight will involve lots of hands on stuff. But caring for these uh, physical, practical needs of God's people needs to be seen in a wider light than just the building. There's a third view which is that anyone who serves in any capacity in the church is called a deacon. And so you end up with churches that, that uh, will have a deacon of music and a deacon of finances and a deacon of coffee prep. And anyone who serves in any capacity is called a deacon. And, of course, the weight behind this, this view is that the word deacon means servant, right? So, so if someone is serving in music or serving in coffee preparation, right, you, you call them a deacon. The problem with this view is, is clear in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, which says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Deacon there is clearly a leadership role in the church. There are the saints together with their leaders, the overseers and the deacons. Deacon is a leadership role in the church, which of course has strict qualifications, according to 1 Timothy 3. You see, so so though every uh, Christian is a servant, not every servant is called a deacon. Deacon is the title reserved for those who lead in service. So, as is clear maybe from that, I land on view number two, that the deacons care for physical needs in the church so that the elders can care for the spiritual needs of the church. Uh, The two are, of course, related, and so elders and deacons need to work closely together. Deacons are men in the church who help lead in the care of physical, practical needs of God's people. With, of course, a special focus on the most needy in the church. With those who, who maybe are unable to care for their physical, practical needs. Now, of course, it's not that deacons do everything in the church. As elders uh, equip the church for the work of ministry so that the whole body speaking the truth in love builds itself up, so deacons are to lead the church in the work of ministry so that we will care for one another's bodily, physical needs. So, you know, if you ask the question, what does this have to do with the rest of us? Well, the elders and the deacons lead in these things. The elders equip so that we can all speak the truth to one another in love. The deacons lead so we can all serve one another in love. Remember 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. uh, We are all given gifts of either speaking or serving. And really, we're all called to do both of those things as we have opportunity, whether we are, quote, gifted or not. All right, there's, there's one last point on the outline, and that's process. We as a church want to do what God has called us to do in the way that God has called us to do it. And it is true, or maybe true, that we get a bit obsessive about that at times. But uh, I, I want to point out the process by which these men come into this role. The apostles, as leaders, could have simply picked seven guys and been done. But they didn't do that. Look at verse 3. The apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice two things. The congregation chooses, and the apostles appoint. You see this again in verse 6. Uh, these seven men they chose, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The congregation set seven men before the apostles. The apostles then prayed and laid their hands on them, thereby appointing them to this work. This is how we do leadership in the church. The congregation votes, chooses, chooses, The elders appoint. We use the word ordain. This means that that, uh, the elders never appoint someone the congregation doesn't want to a leadership position, right? Because the congregation chooses, they vote. But it also means that the elders have the final say, uh, veto power, as it were, right? They have the final say as to who and who is not appointed, Uh, By the way, once again, this is not unique to Acts chapter 6, but is actually consistent throughout the life of God's people. Uh, Sure, there are exceptions, particularly those who are in the the, the highest or the unrepeated kinds of leadership. And so Samuel anoints David by God's direct appointment. Jesus appoints the 12 apostles. But when Moses moves to appoint leaders in Israel... Deuteronomy 1.13 tells us, Moses says, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. Moses says to the congregation of Israel, You choose, I will appoint. Right? The congregation votes, as it were, the elders or existing leadership ordains. You choose, I will appoint. Uh, Of course, there are a few more steps than that in our process, but as we seek to ordain elders in our church or even deacons in our church, we are seeking to be faithful to the spirit of scriptural teaching even in our process. All right, now, uh, before you fall asleep, and before I lose you, if I haven't already, I want to ask one last question, which is this What does all of this tell us about Jesus and his gospel? I'm going to answer briefly. First, Jesus cares for his people, body and soul. This is reflected in the way that Jesus has structured his church, giving ministers of both word and deed, elders and deacons. Second, Again, it's very easy for ministers of the gospel to get distracted by so many good things. But Jesus wants his gospel clearly, regularly, boldly proclaimed so that people can come to know his grace, that he bore our sins in the cross, that he offers reconciliation to the Father, that he pours out new life by his Spirit on his church, that Jesus, the rich, became poor, that we might become rich. It is that message of the free grace of God in the cross that will make us generous people, a community who strives to care for the needy and the poor and the widows and the orphans as a reflection of God's loving care for us in the cross and in the resurrection.